1: The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports gymnast Mike Finch.
2: So the problem that we have with uh, our podcast sometimes is that one of us, and it's not me, does a lot of traveling because uh, a lot of people around the world would like to know his thoughts on various Matt is revolving around sports science, and that, of course, is Professor Ross Tucker, who is back in South Africa after three weeks of traveling around the world and uh, doing some speakers and uh, hanging out with some of the big uh, names in the world of opinion. Uh, (laughs) We'll we'll get into that a bit more detail in a bit bit of time. But uh,
1: Ross, just give us an idea where you were. I know that you were in in the UK for a while, then you went off to Boston. Yeah, the main point was Boston. I was invited to attend the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which Mm -hmm. is held there every year. Well, it's the first time since 20, maybe 19, actually. They might have just been cut off by COVID in 20. But anyway, it was the first time back for them. And they were running a panel on transgender athletes in sport. And I got this email last year and I thought, I don't know if I feel like this. But then I got a follow-up email from Malcolm Gladwell saying, we'd really (laughs) love it if you'd come. I'm hosting this panel. So I thought, well, I better go. I have to. I must go <laughs> because I wanted, I wanted to meet him and see what it, what it was like. So anyway, I, in the end, they made it happen. We, we made it happen together, and off I went. And so there was a panel with uh, he was chairing. I was on. It, Joanna Harper, who's a scientist who's now doing a PhD on this issue in England.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She was. Uh, she's a trans woman herself, and was very involved in the early days of IOC policy around this issue so her initial study formed the basis for the for the policy we'll no doubt talk about shortly and then the third member of the panel was Katie Barnes who's a journalist with ESPN and he's writing a book on this issue now Jonah and Katie both support inclusion of trans athletes in sports and so I was outnumbered on stage and <laughs> it was a uh, and maybe we'll get into it uh, if you want I, didn't, I left it feeling very frustrated. I was, I was kicking myself for weeks afterwards, literally, um, at lost opportunities to say certain things and respond. And I realized some things during that session is that I, I don't know how much more someone like me can contribute to this discussion because it has changed. There was a time a year ago where the trans woman in sport discussion was about data. Mm. And ironically enough, I mean, I was just <clears throat> got an email from Sloan the other day. They're about to release the, the video of that session because they do this so you can watch it and see why I was kicking myself. <laughs> but they called it a conversation led by Malcolm Gladwell on data and participation policy. There was no data in the session. We couldn't get to it. And I think Malcolm Gladwell wanted it. But every time he asked a question, neither Joanna nor Katie wants to speak about data. And, of course, all I want to do and is talk, you, about you talk about data. When you talk about you are talking about the science of the subject rather than the emotion behind it? I'm trying to, yes. And, I mean, I, I'm not dispassionate about it to the point that I don't care about the emotion. In fact, just the opposite. Mm. If I was that dispassionate, I'd have left this thing al- al- alone a long time ago. Because it's actually a pain. It, re- yeah. it really annoys me. And you know what I realized? One of the few realizations was that same morning. It was Saturday morning, first Saturday in March, which was the day of Strada Bianchi. <laughs> so, did you watch the women's finish? Yes, fantastic. It was it was miles better than the men's. The men's yeah. race was so boring. Absolutely. Like I can't, men's cycling makes me uncomfortable at the moment. But that's another. we was cheering for, for Ashley Pessier, our South African rider. At that. So point. we had her <laughs> involved, but even even without her there, I mean, the finish mm. was just like breathtakingly good. Mm. It was one of the best sports finishes you'll ever see in yeah. any sport it was fantastic yeah, the last 20k's were incredible in the women's yeah, race it was, it was amazing yeah. And now, so I watched that that morning because now I'm 5 hours 6 hours ahead behind mm. sorry so I finished watching that and off I go now and what, what am I going to go and do is talk about this issue in women's sports what a what a waste like I'd far rather talk about that type of thing yeah
2: celebration. Now, what's of the physiology
1: sport? Of, of Lotte um, uh, Lotte Kopecky right mm. and um, Van Fleuten and women, Passio. Mm. Now, let's talk about the physiology and the growth of women's cycling to the point that it produces that. Women's rugby is the same. You could talk for hours about concussion in women's rugby and, and the growth of the game and what's being done and so on. But no, instead, I've got to get up there and talk about males in women's sport. It just is so annoying. Is it, is it frustrating... And we've been down this path and,
2: of course, we talked about this issue on past podcasts. But is it frustrating because you feel like the data and the science supports the most logical decision and it, and nobody seems to be listening? And there are still people with voices that are still
1: there despite the evidence. I mean, what's the, what gets you about this issue? Yeah, that's the main thing. So, for example, I understand that there will be advocates on both sides. Hmm who are not interested in data they're advocates for their their positions and for them it's only about emotion and i mean i've spoken to some fairly balanced middle of the road people since that and doctors and so on and they're very sympathetic towards trans individuals they say imagine what it must be like to feel like you're in this body that's not and if that's if that's a genuine feeling and concern which it is in a lot of them that that mm. must be very difficult i mean Everyone's dealt with people who are going through things, but this, that must be really difficult. So yeah, sure. you, you want to be sympathetic and understand that if, if that's the, the side they're arguing for, then me coming there with my physiological data, they're not interested in. Like, why are you in my way? <laughs> yeah. And then on the other side, there are people who are defending women's spaces and who have every right to do that and become more and more aggressive in the opposite direction. And in the end, it's actually a very vitriolic fight. So that part of it's frustrating um mm. because a big part of me wants to try and solve the problem you know not take a side solomonically <laughs> yeah. solomon's wisdom here let's cut the baby in half but okay we not we can't yeah so that's the frustrating bit and then the other part of it is how many sensible people seem to just overlook the data it's mm. so obvious to me and now I, I see sports scientists colleagues um other people who i've worked with in the past Someone tweeted the other day, imagine waking up every morning and you've got many followers on Twitter and real influence around the world and all you want to go and do is is keep trans women out of women's sport. I don't know if he was directing that at me, but I'm like, piss off. <laughs> so excuse my language. But like, how mm. arrogant are you mm. to mm. tell other people what should matter to them mm. and mm. tell them they're wrong about it at the mm. same time? Two birds. Of, like, So that sort of stuff really gets, after after a while, it gets to you. And Do you have moments when you...
2: He, I mean, you obviously do hear these arguments, and you've dealt with it for a, more than a more than a year or so, mm. probably longer. And when you have discussions and panel discussions like you've done, are there moments where you think maybe I need to rethink this or look
1: closely? How I and mean, is there is there any doubt in your mind that the that that the science speaks the truth? No, not really. I mean, of course, there's all, Everyone should always, at some point, question their positions. Mm. So I do that often. Every time I question the science and the physiology, I land in the same place. So until such time as there's a new discovery, that's not going to change. But what I do... So at this conference, um, Katie Barnes made what I think was a fair point about how we have a scarcity mindset. And if we could change that, then we might be able to find ways to be inclusive without compromising women's sport. Because for those... The uninitiated the big problem is that women's sport exists for a reason Mm. that reason is fairness and safety for biological females who don't have the capacity or the ceiling that testosterone creates and so we have closed off a space for them in sport so that we can celebrate katie ledecky and michael phelps as equal even though their performance levels are different. We can celebrate Serena Williams and Nadal federer Djokovic as equals, Mm. even though in a one-on-one matchup, and Williams has said this herself, she'd lose 6-1, 6 in five minutes. Mm. Those are her words. (laughs) Mm. Yet she's still the greatest tennis player we've seen, maybe, across both, but certainly woman. Mm. Why? Because she has a closed space. So, it doesn't matter where you how you frame it and who you pick to represent the argument women's sports exists to create equal reward for equal humans mm. even though they're different in performance mm. right? yeah. so sorry why am i waffling about this that's the root cause if we if we break that boundary and we allow the infiltration whether it's small numbers or large of biological males with this higher capacity we compromise that women's sport integrity now in elite sport it is a zero-sum game there are only eight lanes in the Olympic final. There are only eight lanes in a swimming pool. There are only eleven spots on the football team. Well, fifteen would have plus subs right' a so squad mm. There's only five players gonna start in a in a basketball match so the 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 moment you have selection in a merit based system that that whole system starts to fade and mm. whether it's you know one person or a hundred doesn't really matter. It's conceptually the same thing so Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. So so the the so so with elite sport, it's quite clear that you're trying to protect something that's necessary mm. and rational to protect. Mm. On the other hand, you do say, okay, well what what harm would it do if it happened where there wasn't selection and where we didn't have the limited numbers of spaces? Could we facilitate a sport, a sporting world where it wasn't so brutal and uh capitalistic <laughs> and um you know, and and as as parents listening to this, even without the trans issue, this is true, right? Like once once Paul gets sele- selected for the A team, but Tim doesn't, Tim's Tim's sporting career might be over at 13. Yeah, There's no way back. Yeah. So is there a better that's, way to do sport? Mm. And that's the point that Katie Barnes made. Mm. And I'm thinking about this. Well, maybe there there is. I wouldn't change the whole structure of sport just because of trans women. No. But there could and be a better I way. Mean- and then I find myself thinking about. I never want to compromise on the zero-sum nature of elite sport competitive sport it's not just elite right it's scholarship selections from high school into colleges it's uh, selection into state or provincial or regional teams whatever else it, mm-hmm. it's not just elite olympic we're For talking sure. about that's but right through the right through the whole because the whole system is, system, yeah. is interconnected mm-hmm. um you know what happens at the olympic level can be traced back to something that happened at 15 16. Mm. Rightly or wrongly. That's how it works. So mm. then I find myself thinking, I wonder if there's a better way we can do this to not be as brutally exclusive without being inclusive to the point of unfairness. Mm. But I, the more I'm involved in it, the more I think I go the other way. Mm. And so that's a tension. So the only thing... And just
2: to make it clear what we're talking about. I think for those of you who've not listened to our previous podcast on this issue, when we talk about trans athletes, we're talking about athletes who, in this particular instance, talking about men who became women through sex changes for a variety of reasons. They then participate in sport as women, and the evidence and the science so far and the studies that have been done so far suggest that there is a hangover benefit mm. of being previously male that yeah. gives you a benefit yeah. now that you're female, which exactly. no matter how many hormones you take or suppress, you're still going to have an advantage just in terms of mu- muscle, for instance. Muscle right. so,
1: so in a number of physiological systems that are relevant to performance, muscle mass, muscle size, muscle strength, body fat, heart and lung size. Testosterone creates things that are never fully undone. Mm-hmm. There's, this, there's only one system or attribute that's been shown to be fully reversed, and that's hemoglobin. Males have high levels of hemoglobin, and with testosterone suppression, within about four months, that drops to the female range. And so that, yeah. that's almost completely reversed. But none of the others. So I mean, men
2: have more hemoglobin than women.
1: Yeah, about 15, 20%. Wow. And it drops very quickly, actually, within a few months. Do we months. know why
2: that is the case? That's. Interesting, because you often think
1: about just muscle mass as the difference. But mm. You're talking about even on a blood level, there's a difference. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't know the molecular mechanism for it. Yeah. Testosterone is obviously getting into DNA, switching on genes. Then. Mm. And as a consequence of that, there's some synthesis of red blood cells yeah. that, is, yeah. that is amplified. So yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. All other systems, though, from the skeleton, which can't change at all. I mean, you never get shorter. Your hands never get smaller. Mm. Your legs never get shorter. Your arms... They Mm. stay the same. And then including muscle mass. So where, where for instance, you see differences in in between male and female of say thirty to forty percent for power, for strength, for muscle mass, testosterone suppression for a year takes away five to ten percent. So the result is quite a large retained advantage. And if you have that retained biological advantage then you have retained performance advantages Mm -hmm. and so that's known because there have been now 13 different studies that have been published on trans women showing that so you say that to people and then they say well hang on those studies aren't on elite athletes okay what would happen if they were elite athletes what do you think okay and they never say what (laughs) but they should yeah you've got an obligation if you're going to challenge the science then at least hypothesize what will happen next yeah and the thing is we, we we can make reasonable estimates, not guesses, but we can predict what might happen because we know, for instance, that in men who suppress testosterone because they have prostate cancer, it's been shown that if they do strength training while they're suppressing the testosterone, they don't lose any muscle mass at all. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, lots of places around the world, prostate cancer treatment involves prescribed strength training so that you don't lose muscle mass. Mm-hmm. So, actually... With training you probably have less loss than without yeah yeah. Uh, there have been studies that have suppressed testosterone in males and you can certainly build uh, muscle mass Mm. as a testosterone suppressed male and then we know that in general concept in physiology is that whatever it took to get you to point x is not required to stay at point x you know if you if you had to train for a certain period and in certain volumes and intensities to get to your performance level you can stay there on slightly less than it took to get there Mm. you know you you have this maintenance of detraining and protection against it so again all the evidence suggests that if i suppress testosterone and keep training and i've trained before i'll actually be protected against the loss which Mm. means more retained advantage yeah and now what's happening of course is that slowly but surely the prediction that the science makes is coming true because and this is by the way, that, that argument I just made about the interconnectedness of sports and the zero-sum game and mm. how the Olympics are connected to the high school through a pathway, that came up in the debate because Jonah Harper and Katie Barnes are making the argument that at school level and unless there's money and records involved, we shouldn't have exclusion. We should just be inclusive. And I'm saying, well, no, because there's still there's eight lanes in the pool at the mm. NCAA finals. One of those lanes to a trans woman means one not to a woman. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I didn't make them like this, though. This is why I'm frustrated. And the other thing that I didn't get across well. <laughs> this is quite cathartic for you in a way. It's, it? it's very therapeutic. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Full. <laughs> What was I saying before I interrupted myself? You were I was saying talking about the fact that these are things that you wanted to say around the Malcolm, fact that- Malcolm Gladwell said, you know, there's this there's this saying like that hard cases make bad law. Have you heard that before? Like, you know, yeah. it's a difficult case and you try and write law and that makes... And I did point this out, but not strongly enough, is these examples of trans women who are now succeeding at the highest level, like Laurel Hubbard competing in the Olympics for, for New Zealand in weightlifting, like Leah Thomas, who's swimming this weekend, I'm not sure when this podcast goes out, but... Has either has or will be swimming in the NCAA swimming championships they're not hard cases that make bad law they are the manifestation of the bad policy mm. because two years ago you could have looked at the policies around trans women and then held the science next to them the science that says that advantages are attained and you could have said based on this science and these policies I predict Leah Thomas within the next two years and sure enough here we are Yeah, because if you retain those advantages, and you're even a half-decent swimmer, like Leah Thomas was, as Will Thomas three years ago. Now, Will Thomas was ranked, and I looked at this head of Boston, so that's how I know the numbers, uh, 32nd in the USA in men's swimming in the 1650 yards, and 552nd or 51st in the 200-yard event. He's now number one in both. Because with testosterone suppression, Leah Thomas is swimming percent slower over 200 yards and five and a half percent slower over the 1650 Mm. now the male female difference is eight to twelve percent so if you slow down by two or five percent you're going to move up because you've slowed down by less than the difference of the category difference between you right makes sense yeah so obviously she's going to get better rankings and sure enough number one in the country now at ncaa's maybe some swimmers will peak and leah thomas won't win which means by Monday morning, I'm going to be told on Twitter that because Leah Thomas didn't win, there can't be an advantage. Even if she finishes fourth, she's still potentially um, disadvantaging the person who finished fifth. Correct. Yeah. And third means denying a medal. Yeah. And and the the, the finishing position doesn't tell you about the advantage. Mm. How you because and honestly, I mean, <laughs> you asked what's frustrating. This, this is an example of a frustrating argument. She's not winning, therefore there can't be an advantage. What's the problem? Well. Some of these people should walk, like it's like they're walking around with a giant sandwich board mm. saying I'm an idiot written on them. Mm. You, can't, you can't judge advantage based on the final position. It has to be pre-post. Mm. It's the principle we always, of it more than anything. Yeah. yeah, we always joke when we're cycling, like I wish I had a, an e-bike to get up this climb five minutes faster. I still wouldn't win the Tour de France. Mm. Does that mean my e-bike doesn't give me an advantage? Of course not. It's so stupid to make that case. Mm, mm. But that's the kind of thing that will happen now if, if Thomas doesn't win. But of course, if she does win, um, then mm. 20% more people take notice. But two, I can 2%. imagine
2: within that space of NCAA swimming in this in the States at the moment, there must be a fair amount of controversy that oh, sits around this space. So, mm. you know, there are obviously those who are for and those that are against, but as we saw with Laurel Hubbard, that Lauren Hubbard, um, it was there was a lot of controversy around that, mm. and particularly coming, I'd imagine, from women's groups
1: because oh, it yes. is about protection of sports. So it's gotten, in the last two months since Thomas, well, it was actually almost like November, December last year that Thomas first started registering these performances. The, the conversation has, I mean, it's exponentially more intense than it used to be mm. because parents of these kids in these NCAA schools are now starting to take notice and find a voice the media started to cover it. And I mean, like Sports Illustrated did a whole cover article on Leah Thomas Mm. talking about all the disadvantages and how difficult it is. And you look at this and you say, like, how can you not understand that this is a colliding rights issue? You know, this is an issue where... You know I'm resorting to all the cliches. Now my right to swing my arm through the air ends where your face starts. Have you heard mm. that one? No, but it's a good one. <laughs> so so like that's what this is. like we all have every right to identify how we please and live as we please. but when that right starts to infringe on other rights, we have to change the way we assess this discussion. And mm. in this particular conversation, how can you cover it without acknowledging women's arguments also? And and that's the other frustrating thing is that so many people seem only to say one take one side of this, you know. So so as a Sports Illustrated
2: story about the battle. That she has to, and well, the person has to go under, mm. and the, and so we're sympathetic to her mm. as an athlete.
1: Yeah, extremely. Really? And there's a paragraph or two there about some argue that Thomas shouldn't be allowed to compete because they suggest that there are advantages. No, 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 not some argue and suggest that. Evidence shows that, and until proven otherwise, mm. this means unfairness. And we've we've said now, world rugby was at this point in 2019, early 2020, mm. was. Inclusion and fairness do not coexist. Based on everything we currently know, you pick one or the other, and the media try and make it out that those who say that are, are, are fringe, and then of course you get the transphobia allegations, and it's just, it's extremely poisonous. Mm. And what's happening now is like that it's it's become so aggressive that even people on the same side are hurling insults at one another. Mm. <laughs> because, for instance, and I've done this a couple of times is when we talk about leah thomas should we say she or he yeah because uh, leah thomas's chosen pronouns are she now if i'm going to say my right to swing my hand through space ends where your face starts like calling leah thomas she isn't in theory affecting anything Mm. but women's groups and they've got a point argue that when we change the meaning of words then we start to lose the battle so so now there's this whole debate about pronouns. And so my Twitter timeline is full of people who, there's a, there's a website called Swimming World run by a guy called John Lone, who's been one of the few media guys who's quite outspoken about unfairness in this case. And a couple times a week is writing updates on Thomas and every single time writes the scientific objective view that Thomas has unfair advantages over other swimmers. Mm-hmm. But John Lone has made the choice to say she... When he talks about Thomas. And mm. he gets piled on. So, actually, it's like, I get it. I understand why you want to defend the pronouns she and he and call Leah Thomas he. Mm. But at some point, you're going to put John Lone off doing what he's doing. Because you're actually criticizing your own. Yeah, He's on your side. Yeah. Give him a break. You know, <laughs> like when we, <laughs> when we had our meeting, uh, we would not have gotten those people into the room if we'd refused to recognize their own pronouns mm. for the World Rugby Group. If we'd if we if we had not made certain concessions to be like decent at their at their request we would never even have had a policy it would have been stillborn
0: A lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, to well
2: so go don't we even yeah, let's, let's just talk about I mean, world rugby. Obviously, you're very involved in world rugby. What, what is the at the moment, it's, it's guidelines, isn't it, in mm. terms of
1: trance, not yeah. rules. Right, and that's because different places around the world have different legislative frameworks and, and contexts. And so World Drug, we can't tell Canada what they must do legally. So we have a guideline that they can then choose to implement or not. And many yeah. countries chose not to implement it because they're going the same way out of fear. One of the unions we worked with said, we, we think you're right and we totally actually agree with you, but we're not going to do it. Because the backlash will be so, so huge. And so we're not, we don't want to take so that risk. That's a
2: political hedgehog, isn't it? So it's
1: exactly. Like, and then <laughs> Nobody wants to others catch have it. said, oh, the evidence is not strong enough. Okay, well then fine. Have males play women's rugby based on the fact there's not enough evidence. Mm-hmm. But then go to your next meeting to talk about not letting 16-year-olds play with 14-year-olds. There's no evidence for that. It's the same thing. Were there any but, questions from the floor when you did this debate? No, we didn't have time, uh-huh. um, and it was it was a lively debate, and it was very respectful and decent. And mm. so I think that's and 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 i want, coming back to something I, I brought up earlier. I then was in Johannesburg. There was a sports medicine conference up here, and I was talking to a guy who's a who's now the senior editor of a very big sports science journal about this issue because I spoke about this at the conference, and he was saying that he feels. As an editor, that he's, he's caught in the middle of, the, of a cross, of crossfire here between two rival gangs. Um, mm-hmm. And they are so aggressive towards one another that he actually doesn't want to entertain the de- argument because he doesn't, fi- he doesn't see enough dialogue to actually make it even constructive. So mm-hmm. this is an example where the, the emotion is actually detracting from the potential for progress. Because if the two sides would just settle and listen to one another... I think they would find five percent overlap
0: mm.
1: which might open the door to the ninety five percent disagreement and potential not i don't think there's resolutions again like we can't cut the baby in half mm. but he he was of the opinion that if we could find ways to bring people together instead of opposed then he would he would listen more and and because and because he'd be prepared to listen more, i think with with knowledge and education, he would recognize more the merits of the argument around fairness trumping inclusion in terms of priorities and the fact Mm. that they can't coexist you see but the moment it's as vitriolic as it is i think a lot of people who think they're being decent actually pick the side because they just don't want to deal with the The potential bigotry right yeah so we've we've created I mean, you've even
2: seen that in rugby when you set out the guidelines that there were there were various federations around the world
1: who actually said well we're not going to follow that mm. because they are worried about the backlash of it they're extremely concerned mm. and i mean mm. some of them are well-meaning and mm. some of them are not uh some of them have in my opinion abandoned women's rights they've They've forgotten that this is a colliding right. You know, they've only they've only seen a fist twing, swinging through the air. They haven't seen a face that it's about to impact. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: And then the other thing that's really bad that's happening a lot is Leah Thomas, dozens of times a day, he's a cheat, just wants to win in women's sports, just wants to get into women's change rooms and see naked women. Now, I don't know Leo Thomas at all. Mm. I don't know any of the trans individuals, but... I think when we reduce it to he's cheating or he's a pervert and he just wants to like compete, yeah. the only reason Leah Thomas identifies as trans is to win at sport or to get into one's changing rooms. I think that does a disservice to the yes, discussion. Right. And unfortunately, that voice is being it's amplified hysteria. Hysteria. by Thomas. It's hysteria. <laughs> so Gladwell asked a question. It's a very astute question of the panelists. He said, Does the existence and the performance of a Leah Thomas at the elite level make it more difficult for the trans? agenda at the community level and the answer absolutely is yes because by failing to protect in a in the zero sum environment, it's not the elite level it's ncaa schools uh, college level yeah. ivy league level By failing to ensure that protection for for women sport has allowed this debate to be put out into the mainstream where frankly a lot of people aren't responsible enough to have it or sensible yeah. enough and not or kind enough and decent enough mm. so it's very difficult like i yeah, uh, it's, it's it's. I suppose they're terrible. extremists I mean, on both sides of the argument, but yeah, they are,
2: and 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 especially I, when people don't feel you feel frustrated, I imagine on the other side of the of the argument,
1: they probably there are people that feel equally as frustrated. Well, exactly, and that's why I get it a lot from from from. Again, I sometimes, I don't know, maybe we're going to get it for this podcast using she, not mm. he. Mm. <laughs> um mm. But fine, whatever. Like, you have your opinion. You go, you go fight it your way. I'll deal. I'll try and do this my way, and that's with the data and so on. And to bring it back full circle, the the. I mean, we're at the sports analytics conference. We did not get the opportunity to talk data. You know what I said to you about. 30 to 40% difference in power and strength. Leah Thomas, 2.6% slower now, and therefore gone from, we didn't even get a chance to say that stuff. it's yeah. kind of important. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> and you think but, yeah. a room full of data analysts and, and analytical types, that would be the, but no, we, 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 got, we got pulled into community arguments, inclusion. You know, these trans women, they just want to be part of something. They want to be part of a team. I get that, but so do women. Hmm. So I, I relate more to one side than the other for sure. Yeah. but I'm deeply uncomfortable at the at the toxicity and the and the shouting that's now happening. Mm. And I'm just mostly depressed at the fact that like so many cool women's, it's Cricket World Cup this, right now, right? And I wake yeah. up every morning, I'm watching our women unbeaten, so far and it's fantastic. Yeah. And and it's great. It's it's, yeah, it's it's great. Good. Yeah, like, just to watch. cricket, I've watched Wo- a few. Women's Cricket World Cup now is at the level the men's was like 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's still on a steep upward trajectory. Like that would be cool to celebrate. But no, no one wants to hear. If I tweet about women's cricket, I'll get one like and two retweets. Mm. <laughs> and one other comment saying stick to, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but, but if you tweet about trans stuff, no, hundreds, thousands of engagements. And it's, it's, I'm tired of it.
2: But as you mentioned, right at the start of the podcast, when you talk about the cycling, I mean, women's cycling has come up in leaps and bounds in the last five or six Mm. years where they've been given TV time in collaboration with the men's events happening at the same time, getting to know the women's athletes. So that sport has been protected, but has now got the same level of... Maybe not the same level, but has got much more interest than it ever has. Massively. Because they're getting the exposure and people appreciate
1: watching a good women's race. Yeah, and it's still far behind. Remember last year there was controversy yeah, But it when, still makes a when, good when, race. When um, Lizzie won Parry Roubaix for women and someone mm. compared prize money, and it's, it's comical the difference. Mm. So yeah, they're getting good races. They're on TV. They got pro teams. Fantastic. But now it must kick on. Mm. And every conversation that's had about this issue. Mm. is like one conversation less that could be had about the merits of women's sport. For sure. And I'd far rather talk about that. So I'm not saying that I'm gonna stop talking about this because this is obviously important. And mm. and if you wanna if you wanna develop women's sport, I think the prerequisite is you must protect it, mm. its meaning. And its meaning is woman only.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's <laughs> pretty basic. Yeah. But also I just like I can't even bear to like look at my Twitter timeline. I just <laughs> it's so demoralizing, you know? <laughs> really terrible. Uh, well, anyway. let's get
2: off. Uh, let's get off the subject. Uh, I know that you've probably spoken about this ad nauseum for the last mm. uh, three weeks or so. But thank you very much for that interesting insight, because I think it is interesting to see, as we've discussed it on this uh, on this podcast before. But then to see what the global view is—the fact yeah. that there yeah. are people such as Malcolm Gladwell hosting talks on yeah. this shows the interest there is isn't, mm-hmm. it, even though
1: the decision and the thoughts should be fairly simple. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of, one last thing, two last mm. things on that. Malcolm Gladwell's first question at the conference is mm. let's do this from basics. And Gladwell, like, I've criticized him in the past and maybe he's listening to this. <laughs> Hi, Malcolm. Uh But I, I was, imp- my biggest regret from Boston aside from my my sort of insipid performance in the debate was that i didn't get to spend more time with him because he arrived like 15 months before the panel started and then he left straight after because he had commitments either side mm. so and in those 25 minutes all we spoke about was track track and field he is a nut for track. yeah and he's, he's quite a good runner isn't he he's very good yeah. i mean he used to be really good he said to me his biggest regret is that he doesn't know how fast he could have been if he tried harder and applied himself because yeah. He was beating guys who are now in the Olympic Games when yeah. he was younger. And yeah. uh, he's a nut for track and field. He would not we were we were literally being introduced and he was asking me about South African track and field athletes and Sydney mm. Marie and all this stuff. <laughs> Great company. And so I would have that's a guy I would have loved to go for dinner with, have some beers. I was gonna say if you had to choose your
2: five people for dinner, he'd obviously be I think
1: now. Now he would, he would be I've uh, be, yeah. been lucky. Like I mean, i put David <laughs> Epstein and him on it as well. Yeah, because <laughs> I think I could just that would be like having two... You wouldn't get a wooden in edgeways. Yeah, that would be like having two, uh, I don't know, nuclear reactors next to one another. and it's just two like,
2: heavyweight champions
1: against each other, but uh, but yeah. very smart heavyweight champions. That would be very interesting. So Gladwell's first question to the panel, he says, let's do this from a very simple premise. I'm a Martian and I've come to Earth and I want to know why when I look at sports I see two races. Explain to me why I see two Olympic finals, two Wimbledon titles mm. and so on. So that's a, if you Break force yourself to, that, to answer yeah. that question that, yeah. that gets you off on the right foot It's good. And then his main question to us was, and he says he likes this idea of magic wand experiments it makes you think about something. He says if you had a magic wand that could dispel any boundaries of physics and time and physiology and ethics in this case, what's the one experiment you would do to resolve this question? And he puts that to all three panelists and and mine was, and I mean, so the big, the biggest problem we have here is we have all this physiology, and I've explained the thirteen studies and what they show and what that means. But, but it is a limitation that we don't have it on truly elite males. You know, Leah Thomas, as I mentioned, was a good, ranked five hundredth in the US in the in the one event, thirty second in another. That's a good swimmer. Yeah. If you if you're in the top five hundred in the US, you're good. Never mind the top fifty. Yeah. But it's not great. It's not Caleb Dressel and Michael Phelps level. <laughs> mm. So that's someone at the, in the top 3% making the switch. What you want is top 1% mm. and then see what happens to women's sports. So my magic wand experiment was you go to the four big team competitions around the world that have good women's equivalents. NBA paired with the women's NBA. England football compared with women's Premier League. England Premier League rugby compared with women's Premier 15s and the Aussie rules football, where there's also a fairly well-developed women's one. Mm. And, of course, the Olympic Games. You've got five competitions. At random, you sneak testosterone-suppressing drugs into everyone's toothpaste. (laughs) The Mm. males, the males only, right? Remember, you've got a magic wand. You can do this. You magically make 50% of those males suppress their testosterone without their knowledge. That's Mm. really key because the moment this person knows... All subsequent performance is affected by knowledge. That's why the lab studies on this are not going to be reliable moving forward. Then what you do is, because you know, it's not double-blinded, you know which males are now altered compared to unaltered. You've got your suppressed T-males and your normal T-males. You take your suppressed T-males and you bleed them into the women's competition. So you let all those suppressed T-males play women's NBA for a season, play women's Premier 15 rugby, play women's Premier League soccer and women's AFL. And your theory is that if that T suppression works, within one or two seasons, 50% of that woman's competition will now be biological female and 50% will be altered males. That makes sense, right? Yes. Because you will achieve a new equilibrium with a larger pool. Now, that would have pushed women aside because if there were, let's say, across all those competitions, there were 1,000 biological females, there'll now only be 500. Mm-hmm. So 500 were have lost out. And you can argue that that's unfair. <laughs> but again, magic wand. Mm. All I'm interested in is do we get 50% parity in the women's NBA or not? Mm. And the answer is my theory is that I think we'd be lucky to see any woman left at all. In basketball, I yeah. reckon 90, 90 to 95% of what remains will be those altered males. Yeah. In rugby, it'll be the same. In soccer, maybe slightly less because height's not as important. There's more space on the field. It's not as much a contact sport, more distance running. You know, they're covering like 10, 11K mm. in a game. Maybe there you could get away with 80-20 splits and then AFL will be back to normal. But all the others, and then the Olympic Games, no finalists will be women. Mm. There will be biological males. And that would yeah. be the experiment that would seal the argument in my opinion.
2: When you when you raise that question, I kind of thought, what what would I do if I was a sports scientist? But it would be close to that. Mm. You know, it's it's almost finding that, and I think the ultimate experiment is to, and I guess the only way that that support of transgender women in sport actually works is if subsequent studies come out that prove that there is no physical advantage. But we haven't just talked, I mean, we've talked obviously about testosterone, but we can't just measure, as you've said, on testosterone. Mm -hmm. It's everything from bloods to bones. Correct. And and, and until all those levels become the same within the normal range of women,
1: that's almost impossible. Yeah. And so you just do this massive Mm. ecological experiment where you take 50% of the males, you knock their teeth out without them knowing it, and you bleed them in, and you see if you Mm. reach a new equilibrium that looks... like fair towards women. Not still yeah. not fair because it still means that seventy five percent of the world's male sporting population is competing for fifty percent of the spaces yeah. of women's. Whereas and you're still displacing women. And you can make arguments around social elements and so on. But anyways, the, the point is that study would answer the physiology and then we could take it from there. But even the way you just spoke now is you're, you're arguing it from the point of view that until you have evidence that shows that it's removed, you should have women's space closed to biological males. Yeah, That seems so logical and rational to me. Other people are arguing the opposite. They say mm. until you have evidence that it's unfair, you yeah. should let them in. And this is how we, yeah. we differ so fundamentally. There's not even dialogue. Yeah. So it's very frustrating. Okay. Anyway, let's draw a line under that one.
2: Yeah, anyway, so those of you, of course, I'm sure Ross uh, has been looking on his Twitter and doesn't want to engage in more debate around this uh, issue, but I'm sure there are lots of people with lots of different opinions and we'd obviously like to hear from you if you have something that you uh, feel has any value in this space because there is obviously a ongoing debate. So Ross, I mean, you were there and, and that was obviously why you were there to take part in this particular talk. But what other talks
1: were there? Were, were there you know, the interesting stuff that you attended as... It's just an attendee. Interesting, but d- different from what I anticipated. I, mm. I remember hearing about the Sloan Conference five or six years ago. A friend of mine who used to be an analyst with the South African Sevens rugby team told me about this unbelievable analysis conference in the U.S. It's like the pinnacle of sports science and analysis. So I was really excited for that reason. So I go along to this hoping... A, to meet Gladwell, B, to do well in the debate, neither of which really happened. So two out of two, <laughs> there's two strikes. You still met him. I did. I mean, yeah, but... <laughs> Even went, if it was short. I went to that beer and track and field gossip. Uh, objective three was to network and to meet people who work in sports science and so on. So <laughs> I go along, they have a speaker's function on the first night and mm. off I go and I'm going to network now and I introduce myself to a guy. What do you do? I tell him, he says, the, "I say, he returns the, the answer. He says, I work for... A company that does data analytics for nfl teams oh that's really interesting um tell me more so is that about how the coaches get data off the field and then manage and analyze no, no not really we're, we're more on the ticketing side of the business and how they target their ticket sales to different um, potential customer bases yeah. and how they manage the 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 sponsorship deals and the in-house business strategy i said, okay that's not really my domain nice meeting you so it's In that case, it sounds like more business data than it is about sport. Next guy I'm with, I'm having dinner now with him. I said, what what do you do? He works for Ticketmaster. And they're doing the same thing. They're using data analytics to try and track people's ticket buying behaviors on on this primary and secondary market so that they can better manage ticket sales for teams. The third wow. person I met was in a think tank working on NCAA strategy around sponsorship because, as you may know, the NCAA never used to allow athletes to commercialize their images and, and make money as college athletes, and that's changing now. Now, that's really interesting. So, that's an interesting person, but not science. Yes. <laughs> so, I still haven't met a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, next day, the conference begins, and it's very much the same thing. It's just dominated by NFTs and Bitcoin and gambling. Business. Now, NFTs, I, I saw this yesterday by some
2: pure chance. Non, f- what's it called? Non- non, non-fungible non tokens. Fungible tokens. Yeah. Do, I, do you have any idea what they are? I mean, I'm sure you do, but I, I well, don't I, understand what I increased,
1: I increased my knowledge by 5,000% thanks to Boston, <laughs> but I still know nothing. Mm. I can tell you that the on the, the very first session of the whole conference was Two guys, Gary, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, he calls himself, and Michael Rubin, mm-hmm. both very successful businessmen. G- Gary V wants to own the New York Jets. Michael Rubin already owns part of the Philadelphia 76ers. Sports Nuts, authors, tech, entrepreneurs. And they both said that if you aren't on this, is, this is their words, not mine, right? Please don't blame me when you you're losing money. <laughs> they both said, if you're not on the NFT thing, you are the same now as someone who missed the dot com opportunities in the 1990s. They said that where we are now is where we were in the 1990s. We dot coms and in the internet, a lot of people went crazy, bought stupid, lost money. But a lot of people are really capitalized. That's what NFTs and Bitcoin are, and crypto are going to do right now for the world of sports. And sport. this is particularly in American sport. <laughs> so far. I mean, I know yeah. it's, for instance, I know Los Angeles Lakers sold the naming rights to their stadium. It used to be the staple Center. It's now Crypto.com Arena or Stadium. Mm. $700 million deal. I mean, massive, massive wow. money coming into sport from these companies, which is the same as when... I can't. It was the '90s. I didn't pay attention back then. I was still in school. But um, remember, that, remember in the '90s, there were all those companies that had so much money. They were just flinging yeah, it so around. all dot coms. Yeah. On the, and that bubble burst eventually, mm. but some survived it, and that seems to be their impression. So, as I understand it, they're basically digital trading cards and collectibles. Okay. And you and and Michael Rubin said to the audience, he said, "If you guys aren't already." owners of NFTs go away and get on this now. Now, okay, he's got an incentive to do that because I think his company might be making money off of it. Fascinating. That was interesting, but I I don't know enough to even critically assess what they're saying. uh, it's I want to look this so up. It, it is, and I think you know for for those of you listening, I
2: mean, we know the majority of our listeners are in the UK and the US. You know, they're obviously dotted around the world, but a lot of listeners in that space. And uh, if you know what NFTs are and how they operate, you know, let us know it because it is an interesting space. Like, you know, I, I remember reading the fact that Facebook announced that they're going to allow NFTs, and I had to spend a bit of time mm. looking that up. But it's, it's around these tokens, so yeah, fascinating ah. because it's all about. I mean, to some extent. The, the, the data of sport lends itself to how sport is marketed
1: oh, yeah, in many yeah, ways yeah. so there was a there was a presentation in Boston where they'd used machine learning and robots and cameras to track fan movement around the stadium on game day, so they knew three hours before kickoff where fans would be. Two hours before, one hour before, 30 minutes in half time, exactly where they were going so they could better target where to sell them things and where to put their gambling kiosks and whatever else. Like, It's, sure. it's unbelievable. But that's what the conference so it's was That's almost more the like. science of the business of sport. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's massively data analytic driven. I went to a session that was done by the head analyst for the Los Angeles Lakers. I thought, uh, this will be interesting. He spoke for 30 minutes without saying a thing. Uh, because they don't it want to, to give be it away. The marketer. They don't want to give away the secrets, right? Mm. He's not going to share with us the analysis that took the Lakers to the NBA title in that bubble in 2020. Right? I mean, why would he do that? So mm. instead, he presented generic stuff like, if you're a data analyst, you have to translate the numbers into words for the coach. I mean, yeah, and you know. Don't use slides with more than four bullet points, for instance, Mm. was one of his tips. (laughs) He's talking (laughs) to students. But the thing is, no, he's talking to professionals. Yeah, but um, it sounds like he's talking to students. And the thing is, though, I'm saying this, he was actually really impressive. Mm -hmm. He gave me the impression that he's hell of a good at what he does. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did mention in passing when I used to be at Merrill Lynch. So that was his previous job. He was involved somehow in trading and finance Mm -hmm. and investment management and so on. And so that's the caliber of person who's now... When I, I did a little bit of work for Arsenal Football Club three years ago, and they'd also employed a computer programmer who was a physicist and, and had two PhDs, and I know other teams have got physics guys, uh, computer programmers, engineers. The, the world, it made me realize coming back from Boston that if I, if I was now an 18, 19-year-old kid wanting to go into elite sports and high-performance my best bet would be to go into data and analytics and computational modeling and some kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence.
2: So, I mean, explain I'm, I'm how. I'm a
1: dinosaur now. It's, so, in other words, when
2: you, when you talk about that, how, how does it differ from what sports scientists did to well, what they do now? Well, when I started. You're because, suggesting
1: it's changed a lot. Yeah, when I started, my tools were a treadmill and a VO2 uh, oxygen uh, sensing machine, give you a mask, put you on a treadmill or an indoor bicycle. Mm. measure some blood samples maybe take a biopsy if i was feeling adventurous and and test 15 people in a good study i mean that's what we did we my my phd my first ever research study was 15 participants in an environmental chamber on an indoor bike measuring core and skin temperature heart rates and rpe that was mm. it uh, <laughs> now i'm looking at and thinking okay these guys now have access to 30,000 people's data through Fitbit and Whoop and Aura Ring and all these other different methods that they can use mm. and they are programmers and engineers. The World Rugby at the moment, one of the big projects I'm involved in is a mouth guard study. We've, we've given elite men, women, Young, thirteen-year-old, fifteen-year-old, eighteen-year-old players, mouthguards to play with, pl- to play with, and they've got these they're little... smart
2: mouthguards. They? Yeah,
1: they're yeah. instrumented with a little accelerometer That's that is incredible. very accurately able to capture linear and rotational accelerations of the head, so that we can, for the first time, accurately quantify head load during rugby. Sure, right. extraordinary. These, we, I sit on these meetings, and I'm like. <laughs> are you guys finished yet? Because I don't understand what you've been talking about for 10 minutes. <laughs> but then you can have all the data you like. You've got to understand right. what, what that means in terms of performance. At the end yeah, of the so, so on the interpretation mm. side and the application, yeah. I still feel like, okay, I'm adding some value. But <laughs> but I mean, the point is they're engineers mm. and they are, they are functioning down a very deep hole that I've only ever looked down. They're at the bottom of. <laughs> so they're burrowed into this one topic and they are experts in this one thing in the same way that yeah, I mean, so it's like David Epstein's book Range, and there's there's a theory about hedgehogs and foxes, where hedgehogs know one big thing, and foxes know lots of little things. Sports science seems to me to be a place now for more hedgehogs than ever before, very very knowledgeable people about about one thing, and it's driven so but much. But you
2: still tools. need your foxes to bring that all that specific knowledge into a space which.
1: Yeah, and I suppose, performance. I suppose the danger is that it'll oscillate like a pendulum, yeah. swing maybe from one side to the next. Mm-hmm. Is that we're, I mean, we, we get proposals at World Rugby for funding from research, and honestly, half of them now involve some kind of quote unquote big data. Mm. We're going to take thousands upon thousands of data points and we're going to do machine learning, we're going to model and develop some computational model or a I forget even uh, the name of the word now it's slipped my mind that's how little I understand these things sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and that's where sports science is now mm. if I was so if I was an undergraduate with ambitions of a PhD in sports science and I wasn't doing IT computer science some kind of statistical in-depth stuff not just the basic stats I did I would mm. be very worried that I'm not only heading in the right direction that's it's, it's definitely a- Sports science different. student. You need to keep an eye on that. Yeah. You know? I mean,
2: five years ago. Is it about advancement in the space? Or is there any disadvantage to the fact that everything is focused on DOT now? I mean, is there any reason why it shouldn't go down that road?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean... The reason why I ask this is because when we talk
2: about traditional science, VO2 maxes, being on a machine, you you potentially take away heart and mind (laughs) and mental and that sort of thing because it becomes about facts rather than, for instance, if you go and do a run or at a race, you can run a 5 can race always faster than you can do in training because of the environment and psychological factors. Most people
1: outperform their lab lab performance So does data not allow for outliers for instance i suppose it depends what you're measuring because the one the mm. one thing we do have now and like COVID threw up a lot of studies on this is because all of a sudden you had fitbit or whoop uh e- even yesterday one came out the big medical aid and provider from south africa is called discovery and they run a rewards program where you get fitness uh, you get points for fitness and training mm. at the gym and that mm. can be used to buy coffees on every week um and, and so the, these companies have now started to analyze their data to understand COVID outcomes. So you're going to get 600,000 people who'd uploaded their Strava files, and 200,000 200, people whose Fitbit data was, was obtained, and they knew of those 200,000 how many got COVID, mm-hmm. and then they can track before and after what's the heart rate variability in those people with COVID, and did they return to normal functional activity within one week, two weeks, six months, one mm-hmm. year? So fascinating stuff. Now, that's real life. Yeah. That's data collection that's happening without the need for deliberate data collection, mm. you know? It's mm. incidental. That stuff would be more valid than any lab study. Yeah, Noisier, but certainly more mm. valid. So there's, there's opportunities that big data presents. And I don't, know, I don't know what the downsides of it are other than that it's, you know, there's a danger with big data that you create models that are in effect circular, no model is perfect, you know and the, the the model is is only as good as its input variables mm. and then how they 're interpreted by the model to produce some outcome mm. and when you test sixty thousand people, how do you account for individual variation so I suppose there 's always a danger there that you mm. start to lose sight of the parts of the whole yeah but but in theory, if you 're doing it well that 's the whole point is you can analyze parts of the whole, <laughs> yeah machine learning and predictions and algorithms that anticipate future better than any scientist person in a lab ever could. So it's a it's a super fast changing space, really. There was a session in Boston, by the way, on endurance analytics and data, which isn't quite as far as advanced. And one of the speakers there was Alan Lim, who is known for many things. One of them was one of the sort of founders of PowerTap, because it was one of the first guys who figured out actually cyclists missing data one of the first power meters commercially available yeah Yeah, exactly super expensive Mm. compared to what is available now but they opened the door to data for cyclists Mm. more than just how fast am i going and how far have i gone um and he's now with Scratch Labs, I think. They do the nutrition. And then the other, there was two others. One of them was Kira D'Amato, who's the new marathon record holder for the US, speaking as an athlete about data. That puts all her stuff on Strava, is pretty open about data. And she was saying that once she moved to smartwatches that were able to measure stride length and contact time and so on, it gave her data that, that was interesting. But it didn't, I'd be very surprised if it changed her training. So I sort of cheekily asked the question at that session. And this is something to think about is if you took the best tech available to us in the Western world and you dumped it into Kenya, into the Great Drift Valley for six months, and they knew how to use it. So if you could show them how to use it and interpret yeah. it the way we do. How much faster would they be in the marathon?
2: Well, I suppose the question is you can look at I always think the best example is looking at how events and times have progressed In the last 20 years. So, for instance, for many, many years, the Ironman record in Hawaii was held, I think, by Dave Scott or Mark Allen, I think it might have been Mark Allen, um, which was eight hours and three minutes and four almost two decades that time didn't change despite the fact that there was so much more information coming into that space there was better bikes that you could buy all sorts of things but yet that time still maintained and still ranks as one of the fastest times ever so my argument would be and, and i was just thinking of this questions while you were talking about this how much of a difference does this vast amount of knowledge actually going to make to
1: the end performance mm. well yeah. i don't know yeah. but i mean then you look yeah. at the ironman now and you've got how many guys going way under eight Yes, rides? you have now, yes, but it took a long um, time to get there. And what's driving that? Mm. What's making the best three or four cyclists in the world so fast right now?
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I was reading a piece it's the other day where Thibaut Pinot and Romain Bardet were saying they were riding the same part, but they've been riding for the last four or five years, mm. and they're being shelled out the back of the first climb. Oh, well, you have to be born in Slovenia. That's well, funny. that's the first one requirement <laughs> is you have to have that, that blood cell, the Slovenian blood cells. But anyway, though. Uh, marathon running is, running's gone off the charts in part because of the shoe, but no yeah. one knows yet still how much of the improvements the shoe versus maybe some other things.
2: But there's no doubt the shoe has had there's an no impact. no doubt the shoe's had an yes, impact. we do year, know because, that.
1: Yeah. And one of the things Malcolm Gladwell and I were talking about before going on stage is in college running and high school running in the US, the number of sub-4 minute miles is just unbelievable this year. Mm. I saw a stat saying that in the last five or six years, it's been between 30 and 38 Average of thirty two, this year ninety. I wow. mean, that's it's like, and that must be to do with shoes. Though. Well, you can't you can't make an argument they're all doping. <laughs> yeah. A handful, maybe. Where do you, how do you get from thirty eight to ninety? Yeah. It can only be it yeah. can only be shoes. Uh, so that's I mean that's a good dot study on its own, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that would be I mean, really interesting. Have, that would be
2: if you were able to figure out what shoes they were wearing, yeah, all the time, yeah. Yeah. and then what brand they were wearing. Right. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I
1: asked that question, and, and Kira Kyoto, it was quite quite an interesting answer she said probably the top doesn't get much faster but instead of 5 out of 50 becoming elite athletes 10 out of 50 do yeah which is an interesting way to look at it couldn't disagree mm. Alan Lim sort of looked at the ceiling for 5 seconds made sort of faces for a while and said 2 to 3% which is interesting so he's saying that the average elite Kenyan <laughs> which is a oxymoron uh, the, the typical elite Kenyan who's running 204 Mm. Is going to run two or one? That's three percent more or With or the best science, with the best—not science necessarily, but devices, smart devices, data devices. Well, so, that's suggesting that they're not doing that already. Yeah, exactly, no. exactly. He's saying, he's saying Kipchoge is going to run under two in a legal, proper race, not mm. a contrived, stage-managed thing. Mm. So I don't know. Listeners mm. can let us know what you think. I, I'd I'd be surprised mm. if it was one percent. And that's the point being that I think all that data that we use and so on could be a hindrance for a lot of people because I think physiology is actually quite amazing. And if you learn to listen to it, it does the same job as the data, but better. I actually, I mean, so. to, to wrap
2: things up a little bit Yeah, it, it is a, it's something maybe we can get into a podcast sometime later about creating your own data study of yourself. And mm, for those of you agreed. that are on Strava, I, I like I'm fascinated when I look at a time, a particular climb. And if I've done a PR, I then look back at all the times that I've done 20 or 30 times and I try and figure out what my average time is. Now, none of the data points of that is, is that average number. Yes, but it's it's either side of that number all the right. way through. So average is a very weird way of measuring something. Mm. But if you can say that fifty percent of your times are above that average, and none of it necessarily works, it, it, and there's lots of ways you can look at it. You can say age has had an effect on how fast or slow I am at that climb. My level of fitness has high, all, all those sort of things. Mm. There's millions of different things you can do. But data, is it's quite fun. I mean, you you enjoy data
1: yourself. So I got a power I got power pedals. Aha! I but knew for you this, for that. for this exact reason. Because yeah. now I can actually look at the numbers while I'm riding. Mm. I've, I've had I've gone on three rides now. Nearly killed myself a few times. I've gone <laughs> through red lights. I've nearly gone past intersections and overshot corners because I'm 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 like Chris Froomeing my way around this, the <laughs> peninsula, just looking at my stem. But it's fascinating, and it's it's really interesting to to use intuition guided by data. Mm. So that's that's where it's. So for example. We have we have a typical wind in the Cape in this time of year, and it's from the south. Mm. And if you're riding into it versus with it, what's the effort level and the speed and so on? And now with power output, I can quantify what's obvious to me in the first place. Yeah. Because I'm going slowly here, yeah, and I'm working hard, headwind. Yeah. I'm going fast here, yeah, and I'm not working at all, tailwind. But now I can actually give a number to that, and I can get less depressed at how slowly I'm going because I know the power is actually normal. But the wind is the reason, you know what I mean? Like, yes, no, now that's bad. Now we're talking basic level here yes. to, to illustrate the concept. But ideally, but what I would do if
2: I was you, is I wouldn't look at the power numbers until I got home and be able to look whether there was a difference when I was riding into a wind versus riding home, yeah, the wind behind me. The argument is in cycling, I'm digressing slightly here, yeah. is that if you're riding into it, and psychologically, you feel it's harder, but you've got to remind yourself that you actually you probably pull back a bit out of your brain going, this is going to be hard, they're funny to pace myself differently.
1: Well, I, I'll tell you the answer to that right away is I, I produce much more power into the wind because I don't want to slow down. But did you do that so before I'm, the palm? Yeah, talked? I'm pretty sure I would have because my heart rate <laughs> used to be similarly like way, way higher right, into yeah. the wind. So anyway, the point is that you can start quantifying no, it. You can dot and, it's if you, fun. and if you quantify it with the correct intuition in a systematic way, then the data becomes very important and meaningful positively. Mm. Mm. But if you, if you quantify it with biases then you actually can apply the wrong lessons from the data. And then it becomes counterproductive. And that's where the data conversation is quite mm. interesting. So it would be very interesting to speak to someone from a company that does these smart devices and have them explain like what are the pitfalls of what they do. Because mm. I think more... No, that's probably a bold assertion. Many people have invested in analytics and data and gotten worse because they're not they're not applying it in a yeah. in the correct way. And, we, and and if we could have a conversation to fix that, that would be quite handy. I mean yeah. my what I've just spoken about the power thing is sort of semi jokey basic stuff. Yeah. But this there's, there's some important concepts in there.
2: Yeah, mm. yeah. I think it's a good point. And we definitely need to maybe look at uh, how to analyze your own sports data down the line and to, to use it correctly. Because there is so much technology in sport at the moment available to everybody that's out there doing any kind of sport. And um, I'm sure there's an opportunity for everybody, whether you're a cyclist or a runner or play squash or racquetball or tennis, You know that the research is out there and, and you can download it onto your smartwatch. So it's just about understanding what it's about. Anyway, I think it's, it's great to wrap up, and I think it must have been a great trip to be involved, but uh, we're going to be getting in, hopefully, a couple of interviews in the next couple of weeks. We are very much hoping we're going to get Jim Walmsley onto this podcast, and uh, I'd say we've had some trouble just coordinating our time zones with Jim at the moment, and we're just following on with Jim after our month in February, talking a lot about endurance. So we're hoping that in the next couple of weeks we're going to have Jim Walmsley on our podcast to talk about his life as an ultra-distance runner. But
1: until then, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Sports iPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast.